Luke 4, verses 16 through 30. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Father in heaven, my earnest prayer now is that this message will have a better reception than Jesus did. And that you would take what he had to say there and instead of causing people to want to throw me off a cliff, they would throw the devil off a cliff. There are some messages that make hometown kids unwelcome in their own church. Some messages make prophets unacceptable in their own country. And Jesus delivered one. Lord, what was it that made them so angry when they had been speaking so well? I pray that you'd show us and instead of producing anger in us, would change us powerfully, deeply, alter our minds and our hearts and our priorities and our affections. Lord, come now and help me to deliver this word in the name of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus for the good of this church and the good of the city through this church. Come, guard us from the evil one now. Establish the work of our hands. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
last week, I tried to blow a trumpet for what I called planting a passion. I raised this question. Can we as a church, can we as a whole church, a body of believers, get our arms around a dream and together plant a church? And I put it under the banner of a focusing of our mission statement hung on the wall up there. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And so I ask, can we plant a body of people in another place in the Twin Cities that carry that same vision and call it planting a passion? And since then, dreams have begotten dreams. Some of you have contacted me and said, how about Charlotte? Because when the Billy Graham Association moves from the Twin Cities after 50 years to Charlotte, dozens of people from here have to choose whether to go there. And they said, how about just send the whole church? (laughs) Or at least another one like it. Not outside the realm of dream. So let us pray. Dreams beget dreams. But you remember, I didn't say just any old church. I put a whole list of adjectives, these favorite hyphenated adjectives that we like around here. I said, this church better be a God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, mission-mobilizing, soul-winning, justice-pursuing church. That's the kind of church it better be. And when I said justice-pursuing, I wasn't picking it out of the air. I was thinking this Sunday, racial justice, and next Sunday, justice for the unborn. Because as we enter the 21st century now in America, we're into it. These two issues are big in America. If you don't feel it, don't know it, wake up. These are big. And the question might be raised. Could it be that one of the reasons that we as a evangelical church or movement, call it a white evangelical church, or call the one down the street a black evangelical church, the names are not happy names in my vocabulary. It's not a happy designation. But could it be that one of the reasons we haven't made as much progress as we should in both of those causes is that there's a link between that adjective near the end of my list and the three at the front end of my list. God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated. We think we're God-centered. We think we're Christ-exalting. We think we are Bible-saturated. And have we even... Seriously enough, ask the question whether we are pursuing God's supremacy in the way we think and feel about ethnic relationships.
ethnic realities in our culture? Are we even posing the question, how, how is Christ being exalted in my life by the way I think and act and feel about racial issues? Do we ask it? How is the Bible permeating my thought life, my feeling life, my action life, my attitudes as I think about the financial implications, education implications, employment implications, housing implications, composition of body of Christ implications of race relations. Do we as a congregation, not a person here and a person there, but as a congregation, as we lift up these glorious hyphenated adjectives over this church, and God willing, over another one, do they represent anything in our thinking? Do we get up in the morning, go to bed at night, eat our lunches, thinking toward God-centeredness in these areas, Christ-exalting work in these areas, Bible permeation in these areas. I said in one of the services last Sunday, we're not contemplating the planting of a church with a common vision because we think we've arrived and are therefore able to reproduce ourselves now. We haven't arrived. Nobody has arrived. And if you wait until you arrive, you will do nothing for Jesus. You won't get married. You wait until you... Ready? Nobody's ever ready. You won't have children if you wait until you're the ideal parent. You won't get a job if you wait till you're the ideal employee. And you surely won't plan a church. Nothing paralyzes good people more than their feelings of imperfection. We won't have it, right? We just won't be paralyzed like that. Oh, where are the people who can hear, accept in measure, and then let go the criticism of the naysayers? Where are they? We're all a bunch of thin-skinned whiners. One criticism, and we take our ball and go home. That's enough of that cause. Where are the people that have a little thick skin and a soft heart who press on, keep going in a worthy cause? No, no, no. We are not planting a church because we think we've arrived. Now we can reproduce ourselves all over the place. In fact, when I think about the dream of planting a major, strong, God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, soul-winning, mission-mobilizing, justice-pursuing church, I think about a church with a different place and a different people and different leadership who, because of that, do so many things so much better than we do them here. That's what I dream about. 
Not, oh, I hope they can do it as well as we do it here. Baloney, I am so keenly aware of the failures of this church. I see the statistics. I know my heart. I watch the leaders. I see how many people get saved and don't get saved. I see how many people are in bondage to various things. I see marriages breaking up and coming back together. I see all kinds of pain and sin in this church. The last thing I want to do is create something less effective than we are or as effective as we are. I want to believe that God might have a dream for another church in another place to do a new work and a greater work than has ever been done here. That's the way I dream about it anyway. And I hope you will too. You know, one of the ways to think about planting a passion is that it is the planting of a place where you breed people who live for a great cause and not for comfort. Now, I've launched this balloon before, waved this banner over messages before. Christians are people who move toward need, not comfort. What an indictment of the American evangelical church. How many people, how many people in the church get up in the morning Think all day and think at night about how to increase their securities, increase their comforts, increase their pleasures, increase their self-preservation, their self-exaltation, their self-recreation. Almost all of their energies go into how to make my life better. Blind to the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So when I think about church planning, I'm going to tweak it and just say, oh, may there be many who rise up who say, it is my grand cause in life to labor for a great effectiveness in racial justice. And who don't lay it down until they've accomplished it. Or justice for the unborn. Or pick another one. What is your cause? I mean, surely there's not a person in this room that is satisfied with the present significance of the output of your life for something bigger than yourself, your family, and your church. Oh, how we have idolized the family in these days. Rescuing something good from something neglected, it's become almost an idol for people. Well, if I'm making things a little better for my kids, I can just let the world go to hell. That's not what kids are for. Kids are be raised up watching their parents live for a cause and then join them in it. If it costs them their life and the parents standing at their grave will say they lived well while they lived. Thank you, God. This coddling and securing and more and more junk to ruin their lives. Children are to raise up into warriors for causes, not comforts. Everybody in this room ought to have a cause bigger than yourself, your family, and your church. A big cause to get your arms around. And there's so much sickness and mental malady in the world because we are living for exactly the wrong things Things malfunction in your life when you devote energies that were intended for great causes for small things. 
They malfunction. Prayer intended to be a wartime walkie-talkie. You try to turn it into a domestic intercom to call down more comforts from the butler in the sky. It will malfunction. But if you get a cause and say, headquarters, I need fire cover, it'll work. That's what it's designed for. And hardly anybody uses it. Just may my day go well. May I be able to pay my bills. and Just me, not me invested in a grand cause. So what is it? What's your cause? I've got one this Sunday to commend to you. And I've got one for next Sunday. I'm soaking in Wilberforce these days. William Wilberforce, because i got a lecture on Wilberforce in a couple of weeks at the pastor's conference, which is all about this issue, by the way. William Wilberforce, grand, big-hearted Christian, warm-hearted, vibrant, evangelical, utterly sold-out, devotee, hard-working, overcomer of the slave trade in England. What's so remarkable about Wilberforce is his radical, undaunted perseverance. October 28, 1787, 28 years old, he writes in his diary, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morals. And then battle after battle after battle in the House of Commons... He loses for 20 years and never sits down, never gives up, never takes his ball and goes home when he's criticized ruthlessly, lied about again and again and again, because that's the only defense immoral people have is to defame those who stand for justice. February 24, 1807, 4 a.m., House of Commons, the third vote, 20 years later, the slave trade in England becomes once and forevermore illegal. And he wasn't finished. Because while the slave trade was declared illegal, slavery was not. It was all too bound up with the economic interests of the land. And so he kept on and on and on and on and on and on, never, 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 never stopping Never giving up. July 26, 1833, 16 years later, and three days before he died, slavery became illegal in Britain and all of her colonies. And they rose to give him a standing ovation because he had become very sick with a curvature of the spine so that every photograph you see of Wilberforce, he looks like this. And you wonder if he's striking a pose. He's not striking a pose. It's the way he always walked. So when I think of planting a passion, I want to know where the Wilberforces are. I want, to, I want churches that beget Wilberforces. I thought up this analogy. Adrenaline versus heart. Adrenal gland versus heart. Where are the coronary Christians and not the adrenaline Christians? Adrenaline, what's that good for? A spurt of energy, right? And I'd thank God for it. Get out of danger that way and then drop down dead <laughs> with weariness or fatigue or depression because you've got hooked on this adrenaline. And you know what? 
there's another thing in here, not the adrenal gland, but the heart. And it just keeps boom, 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 boom. Good times, bad times, boom, 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 boom. Hard times, easy times, boom, 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 boom. Sad times, happy times, up times, down times, dangerous times, safe times, boom, 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 boom. Just serving you, just serving you. Never stopping. Serving you, serving you, serving you. Never says, I don't like your attitude, I quit. Just keeps on serving you, sinning, keeps on beating when you're in bed with your girlfriend. Keeps on beating whether you get criticized or praised. Just keeps on beating. I want to know where the coronary Christians are. Not the adrenal Christians. We do this adrenal thing every year, January, Martin Luther King weekend. We get the adrenal going, get that good choir up here, boom, make it happen. Yes. What we believe in. We don't need flashes in the pan. We don't need more adrenaline Christians. We need heart Christians. Heart-like Christians. That just keep beating and beating and beating and beating and beating until they're gone off the scene for the great cause that God has called them to. And I'm calling you to a cause this morning. To say, oh, may my grand cause be, and if not this one, racial justice and racial harmony, get one big enough for your heart. We got a couple of causes here. Turn with me to Luke, Luke 4, 16 to 30. Homegrown, homegrown boy comes home. He's made a big name for himself up in Capernaum. Prophets coming home. Hometown Nazareth. Home church. Synagogue. Been there all his life probably. 30 years. They know him. And he preaches. They give him the synagogue scroll. Isaiah. He goes to chapter 61. And he reads about the release of the captives. And the declaring of the acceptable year of the Lord. Rolls it up. Sits down. They preached sitting down in those days, evidently. Boy, would that cramp a lot of people's style. I'd bump my knuckles all the time. He's sitting down. He looks right at him and he says, Today, today, this text has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, that takes the breath away. Headlines next morning, hometown boy declares self to be the Messiah. Because that's a messianic text he just read. So far, so good. No problems, right? They spoke well of him. Look at verse 22. All were speaking well of him, wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And then Jesus does something absolutely inexplicable if your goal is to grow the church instead of pursue justice and mercy. Watch what he does. Out of the blue. I mean, stick with your text, for goodness sakes. You're reading Isaiah 61. Talk to us about the Messianic age. And he jumps to 1 Kings 17. 
So what's going on here? What are you doing? What's this story got to do with anything? Two of them, no less. So let's read it. First story. Verse 25. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months. When a great famine came over all the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them. But only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Now, that's not part of Israel. That's Phoenicia on the coast. Phoenicia. Gentile, unclean, uncircumcised, pagan Phoenicia. To a woman who was the widow. Out of the blue, he tells a story. I mean, they must have said, what? What are you saying? Well, what's the point of that? You just read Isaiah 61, release the captives, set the people free, acceptable year of the Lord. It's all about the Messianic age. What are you telling us these stories about non-Jews getting blessed for? He does it again. Just rubs it in. He knows exactly what's coming here, by the way. He knows exactly what he's doing. You see that in verse 24. Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. He said that before he told the stories. He knows where he's going. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's causing a riot. This is dangerous. His life is almost lost here. Except that his hour had not yet come. So he's safe. In God's sovereignty. Story number two, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them, none of the lepers in Israel was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, the enemy, the overlord. What's he doing? Where, where did Isaiah 61 go? It was supposed to be about the messianic kingdom and the release of the captives and setting the prisoner free and the acceptable year of the Lord and what the kingdom would look like. And that's where he is. Not what they expected and not what they wanted to hear. Because they did not like it. So let's read that. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. All he did was tell Old Testament stories. Didn't add anything. Didn't take anything away. Didn't make any comments on them. And they got up and drove him out of the city led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. They got it, and they didn't like it. 
What's the point of the story? Negatively, I'd put it like this. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. Now, by ethnocentrism, I mean the thought, the conviction, or the feeling that my ethnic group should be treated as superior or privileged. That's my definition of ethnocentrism when I use it in this sentence. The thought or the feeling thought through or spontaneously felt that my ethnic group should be viewed as, treated as, superior or privileged. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. That's the point of this story. Yes, I'm talking about the Messianic kingdom. Yes, the Messianic kingdom has broken in on you. Yes, the king of kings has arrived. And this is what he's about. Woe to the synagogue at Nazareth. I wonder if you think I've gone too far in pronouncing woe upon them. Justified? Am I justified in saying Woe to you, Nazareth. Well, to answer that question, go with me to Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13. Matthew 8. Here he's just finished the Sermon on the Mount. End of chapter 7. First four verses of chapter 8, a leper approaches him, the most despised, rejected group in Israel, the lepers. Even though they were Jews, they were sick, and they were dangerous. And so everybody kept them at a distance, and they were supposed to say, unclean, unclean, so nobody would get near them. And Jesus, against all protocol, touches him and makes him well. And the next thing that arrives is the second most despised group in Israel. Roman soldier, platoon leader, centurion, leader of a hundred. It would be like a Marine approaching Jesus as a Taliban freedom fighter. American Marine, Taliban freedom fighter, that's what we got here. The overlords, the intruders, the invaders, the uncircumcised, wicked, evil spreaders of Western junk in our holy land. That's the centurion. Now, I know from the Gospel of Luke, this centurion has won his way into the hearts of quite a few Jews. And you know what? That's of absolutely no interest to Matthew. He doesn't mention it. One thing matters to Matthew and the point he's going to make in this story. This man is not a Jew. The man says, Lord, my servant is paralyzed at home. He's being fearfully tormented. And without one second of hesitation, it appears, in verse 7, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. I'll come to your house, you foreigner, you uncircumcised Roman overlord. I'll come to your house. 
And then this man says something that so astonishes Jesus, it totally changes the point of the story. Here's what he says, verse 8. Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes and this one, come. And he comes, do this to my slave. And he does it. Jesus hears that. And as we would say today, it blows his mind. Here you have a non-Jew speaking to Jesus, the Son of Man, Son of God, Jewish Messiah. And he says, don't don't come to my house. I'm a sinner. I'm a foreigner. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. So you hear two things that Jesus admires here. Humility and lowliness and brokenness and contrition and the absence of presumption of every kind and massive confidence in Jesus. Those two things he says now, verse 10 in the middle. Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you, many will come from east and west. Stop. Suddenly, Jesus has taken a situation that's about a sick servant and a powerful healer. And he's going to make something totally different out of it. He's shifting the focus all off of healing. All off of his power and everything is now going to be focused on. Truly, I tell you, many will come from east. Where's that? And west. East. Jordan. Saudi Arabia. Iran. Iraq. Afghanistan. Pakistan, India, China, Myanmar, Japan. That's east. What's west? Gaza Strip, Egypt, Greece, Turkey, Rome, England, America. Many of these uncircumcised, unclean, different color, different shaped people are going to come. And what are they going to do? Let's read the rest of verse 11. They will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sons of the kingdom. Ethnically privileged to be a part of the historic covenant people in hell. 
No, I did not overstate it when I said, Woe to you, Nazareth. Woe to you, synagogue in Nazareth. Now, this is utterly shocking. To hear the Messiah say to the supposed elect chosen people, you are cast out into outer darkness and people, many of them from east and west are coming and they're going to sit and eat in heaven with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's what I'm about. That's what I'm about. So negatively, I say Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. And positively, I say he's here defining a new people of God. He's defining a new people of God. Who are they? No ethnic group matters when it comes to qualifying for the kingdom. Not color, Christ. Not culture, faith. Humility, lowliness. There's so many stories like this. I've given you two. That's all I'll give you. I'll name the others. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Why did he choose a Samaritan to model compassion and say, go, be like this? Samaritans. The healing of the ten lepers. Remember that? How many returned? Tell me. One. Does anybody remember what he says about that one? Where are the nine? And only one has returned. And he himself is a foreigner. The only one who came back was the one who saw, I've received mercy. I've received mercy. I didn't deserve it at all. Answer, nobody deserves it at all. And those who recognize they don't, they are the people of God. Every color Every culture, one thing counts, Christ trusted. Or another story, the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. This is the same place, Syrophoenicia, the Sidon of the Nazareth sermon. And now it's brought up to date a thousand years. And here we have a living widow who is the Syrophoenician. And Jesus goes to her and says, I'm called only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs from under the children's table. And he says, woman, for this saying, you're included. In other words, it isn't ethnicity anymore. It's trust. It's humility. What about children? Tell me this. Why were there wise men at the birth of Jesus? Where did they come from? They came from the east. Where's that? Persia, Babylon, Arabia. Who knows? But not Israel. There's a point to that. They're included. That's why they're there. Last story, the death and resurrection of Jesus interpreted by Jesus in the parable of the tenants. Remember, God represented as the owner of the vineyard, sends servant after servant. They beat him all up. We want, the, we, we want everything for ourselves. We don't want to give any, any of our fruit up. And then he sends his son. They kill the son. Jesus asked, what will God do to them? The tenants, the chosen, the privileged, the ethnic people of God. What will God do now? And he answers in the parable, and then he answers out of the parable. 
Here's the verse from out of the parable, namely Matthew 21:43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people. And you start to think, which ethnicity is going to get it? Who bear the fruit of it. That's the new definition of the people of God. Not color, but fruit-bearing faith. That marks the people of every color and every ethnicity. This is what Jesus was getting at, and this is what Martin Luther King Jr. was getting at in his most famous of all speech, when he said, I dream, I have a dream of a day when my four precious children will live in a land which judges a man no longer on the basis of his color, but on the content of his character. Remember that great line? That's what Jesus is getting at. Only it's not just general character, it's Christ. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. I closed by telling you about a phone call yesterday. My son Ben called, Noel and I, on the phone with Ben. She's on one phone, I'm the other. He's talking about missions. Should I get involved with this mission or that mission? And he asked us about one in particular, and we said, well, here's a story. And Noel and I chipped in to get the story just right, because we both remember December 1967, Urbana. Warren Webster was one of the mission leaders on a panel it was about the last day. They took questions from the audience in those days, believe it or not. 15,000 kids taking questions from the microphone to this panel. Anything you want to ask at all. And one young person comes to the mic and says, Mr. Webster, you've served a long time in Pakistan. What would you do or what have you done? What would you have done if your daughter chose to marry a Pakistani? And Noel and I put our heads together to get the wording almost exactly right. About that. And he said, with a kind of fire in his eyes, better a poor Christian Pakistani than a rich, white, unbelieving American banker. That's the line we remember. That was the most important line in the whole conference for us in 1967. In other words, Christ, not color, is the issue. Christ, not color, is the issue. And that's the issue this morning. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. So we're going to build a church. Oh, God, grant that we can plant a church this year. And may it be a God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, mission-mobilizing, soul-winning, justice-pursuing, Never say die coronary like church where Christ, not color, is the issue. And every possible kind of ethnicity can be folded in so that more and more we look like the Christ of the Gospels. So why don't you stand up with me as we close. Lord Jesus, we believe that your honors will be spread abroad more magnificently and more truly to your true nature as the end of 
ethnocentrism, if we as a church would become more like that, more like you, and I ask you to perform it. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.